Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Purple Stars podcast. I'm Sarah, your host, and we have someone very special for you on the show today. He is an author, the founder of the Surali Institute, and one of the world's leading consultants on the topic of economic, economic development. And above all, he has the ability to capture everyone's attention with his passion and heart. Please welcome Ernesto Sirali. You're so kind. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, well, we were very close to get to meet each other in person, but uh, yeah. <laughs> we couldn't because the event was uh, uh, red-tagged. Um, uh, so many of the people in that uh, at that conference were... Um, uh, was it COVID or was the weather or what happened? You remember? Was the, yes. Um, I remember I was there and you had COVID, so you couldn't come. Oh, I had COVID. Oh, yes. it's my fault. Yes. <laughs> okay, uh, okay. So it was so uh, funny. I went to this conference and it was in Denver and the moderate the presenter of the day he kept saying oh my god you guys you will love ernesto he's so so great and i think you were supposed to be keynote speaker on day two and he yeah. really got us pumped every single one of us and then in the morning he said oh guys we're really sorry uh, <laughs> but what was amazing you as you probably remember you did the keynote and the presentation online and it was, everyone was just so blown away despite doing it online that you still captured everyone and you re like, it's just amazing your aura and your presence even felt from so many miles away with COVID everyone. And so I remember really well at that dinner, everyone was talking about your talk. So I'm very excited to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Um... I am a humanist and it's very, very difficult to find a, a walking, living humanist. Usually they, you can find them in books. Uh, I'm not an idealist. I don't believe that you should start with why. I think you should always start with who. Um, mm. We are the source of ideas. Um, ideas don't exist without uh, us humans. So, uh, you know, uh, I have introduced humanism to the field of uh, entrepreneurship. And um, the results are absolutely stunning, superb. We have been able to find beauty um, in people all over the world, in remote villages, in uh, indigenous communities, uh, among refugees, immigrants in, uh, uh, in developed countries. Um, I have now come to believe that um, truly for the last 40 years, I have only ever seen beauty. And the reason why I see beauty is because I look for beauty. And uh, what I say to people is that be very, very careful what you look for, because you are going to find it. You arrive in a community looking for poverty, misery, you know, uh, drug addictions, and uh, you're going to find them. And you go to a community looking for beauty, and you're going to find that they, the amazing thing is that we are so un, unused to, we are so uh, 
How, how do you say somebody who has no practice? We do not know mm-hmm. how to look for beauty. Therefore, we don't see it. And I found myself in communities where long-term inhabitants, second, third generation of people who live in that community uh, say to me, we don't have smart people here. We don't have entrepreneurs, you know. No, I have had mayors of communities saying to me, nobody here has a half a brain. And unless you come and you develop them, um, unless you bring ideas and technologies from outside the community, you will not find it. And so in four days, under the nose of the local people, I find entrepreneurs, I find passionate, self-motivated people who had never spoken to a stranger about that idea because nobody had the sense of promising confidentiality. Mm-hmm. So if you invite entrepreneurs to come to a public meeting and in a public meeting, tell everybody what they want to do with their money, the entrepreneurs are not going to say in public what they want to do for two reasons. One, they don't want uh, people to steal their idea, but it's much more seriously. The reason why is because they do not want to be ridiculed in public because they have had the husband ridiculing them. They had the, the family. And he said, if people will make fun of me at home, how can I trust telling my idea to an audience? I don't want to be laughed at in the community. Mm-hmm. And because entrepreneurs always want to do something different, this idea of being dismissed and ridiculed was very strong. So um, I've been having fun because I arrive in a community and people say, what are you doing here? Well, I've been invited to help local entrepreneurs. And they say, we don't have anybody. <laughs> so, oh, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's see how many, uh, how many hours it's going to take me. And there have been uh, times that literally, you know, the person at the cafe I spoke to said, oh, my God, you should speak to my brother. Mm-hmm. He's desperate to, uh, to tell the story and to be helped to do it. And then the help is never money with us. You know, the help, uh, believe me, Sarah, the help is know-how. The moment that you know the secret of entrepreneurship, you don't need money. I have two questions about this. Uh, Maybe we can start off for the audience who isn't that aware yet when it comes to your journey and your background. Could you share a little bit about how your journey started especially sure. with the hippo story. I really love that one. And then also afterwards, we talk about the secret of what makes a successful entrepreneur. So sure. we can um, go from one to the other. Sure. Uh, the story I told um, on a TED talk um, that now is 11 years old, and that TED talk is uh, titled, If You Really Want to Help Someone, Shut Up and Listen. Um, the story that I told uh, during the TED talk was the story 
of my very, very first project uh, working in Africa, in Zambia, um, for a um, non-profit organization, an NGO. And this NGO was in the field of international aid, uh, technical cooperation with African countries. And the story that I tell, which is, uh, happened to me when I was 21 years old, was my very first project in the African continent. I had just started to work for the organization and uh, uh, the organization had uh, decided to teach agriculture or more uh, properly horticulture to a uh, Zambian uh, community on uh, the river Zambezi. At that time, there was still unrest between Zambia and at that time Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. And it was a community uh, that somehow somebody had, uh, in the Italian government, had became aware of and was this community at risk because it was at the border and there was still some, some fighting. But this community did not have any agriculture um, and yet it has beautiful location beautiful land all the water in the world because of the Zambezi river and so what we did um, we this was an Italian NGO we were funded by the Italian government so this Italian NGO that I worked for decided to conceive this phenomenal um, project where we would send five Italian agricultural uh, graduates. Uh, they would teach uh, a group of local people uh, how to grow um, vegetable, basically, you know, and then we would withdraw our support we will leave the land to the local community we will help them to establish a cooperative so that they could take the harvest to the capital city and um, so it was a fantastic uh, project on paper <laughs> then what we did we arrived there and we bought the land we built the, the the house we got the tractor we got the implements it costed lots of money to do so and we employed some of the local people to come and uh, work in the land and of course these local people you know they have absolutely not you no know, we paid them lots of money <laughs> for uh, every day and they would come and uh, do everything we will tell them to do and uh, we were very, very uh, happy with, <laughs> with what was happening because the soil was so fertile and never been cultivated. So you can imagine, you know, we would put, the, we had all these seeds that we brought from Italy. So <laughs> we had tomato seeds and zucchini and lettuce and, <laughs> and we were so enthusiastic. And the normal tomato in Italy grows to this this size, you know? But in Zambia, in that soil, it was like a watermelon. It was like, a, a, you know, a, a, it was this big. And we were just beside ourselves taking pictures and telling to the local people, 
see how easy you should do this because look how wonderful it is. And the local people always big smiles, you know, whoever has worked in, in sub-Sahara Africa, they will always tell you that this smile is <laughs> like, you know, fluorescent, beautiful smile. These guys loved us. We would pay them. They were cultivating fantastic tomatoes. So we are excited because now is the first harvest and we can go and harvest the tomatoes, take them to the capital city, Lusaka, and start you know, the production. The night before uh, we were supposed to harvest the first crop of tomatoes, some 200 hippos came out of the Zambezi River overnight and they ate everything. <laughs> so we arrived there, oh my God, the hippos. <laughs> and then we look at, at the, at the Zambezi River and say, <laughs> and then some people said, yeah, that's why we have no agriculture here. <laughs> what do you mean you have? Did you know about the hippos? Because they said, yeah, that's why we can't grow anything. And we expect millions, so we have been there. And we say, why didn't you tell us? And the poor guy, they say, you never, you never asked. <laughs> so I'm saying, oh my God. What kind of idiots are we? We arrive in a place and we are so <laughs> convinced that we know much better than the local people. We think that they have no agriculture because the poor guys, nobody has told them. No, they have no agriculture because they live by one of the biggest rivers in the world that is full of rivers. So then we are so stupid that we are saying, oh, oh God. Let's build a fence. You know, these hippos are coming. Let's build a fence to keep them out. Now, first of all, the hippos are, they weigh a ton. I mean, they are the most aggressive animals and the most dangerous. I mean, so we're thinking, what? We have to build a Berlin Wall here, not a fence. You know? So we had no money. So we saying, how are we going to do that? So everything stops. And we write a letter to the bureaucrats in Rome to say we need more money to build a wall. <laughs> and so we are waiting for an answer. You can imagine the people in Rome to say, why do they need a wall? <laughs> What's happening? Uh, it's just hysterical in any case. So finally, we stuck there for a month and we have nothing to do. And the local people, finally, they said to us, listen, <laughs> Don't build a wall here because we are, we are complaining. Say no, we cannot start because we don't have the wall. And so finally, this old guy said to us, "Listen, don't build a wall here." <laughs> and they said, uh, uh, "The hippos are not the problem." And we said, "What do you mean the hippos are not the problem? Look what they done." <laughs> and the poor guy says, "Yeah, but you should see what happens when the elephants show up." And we said, the elephants, my God, <laughs> where are the elephants? we never seen an elephant. <laughs> they said, yeah, yeah, because they only come during the migration cycle. And we said, what do you mean? In Italy, we knew that ducks, <laughs> geese migrate, <laughs> but nobody told us in Italy that elephants migrate. <laughs> you know, not only they migrate, but they, when they migrate, they migrate by the thousands. 
So now imagine, they said, if you put too much uh, agricultural produce in one place, they can smell it miles away. So if you have too much going on in the place, the elephants then will come. And when you get 200 elephants coming, they not only eat everything, but then they destroy, uh, you know, fences, houses, they kill people. So um, we abandoned the project and uh, there was absolutely nothing left in, you know, a few months time, everything has been dismantled, you know, taken away because, you know, um, you know, the project failed, but instead of telling the people in Rome why the project failed, uh, like many other projects, you never, ever, ever admit that you made a mistake. Because if you admit that you make a mistake, the founders will not fund you anymore. So what I uh, came to realize was, this is, this is awful what we're doing. And uh, I was speaking to somebody in my agency who was a, a young graduate from uh, a faculty uh, from another university in, in Italy. And she said to me, oh, you really, I can see that you are taking this very seriously. And she said to me, maybe you should read this book. And so she gave me a book to read. And the book to read was... Uh, at the time was a bestseller around the world. Um, an economist, a British economist called Ernest Schumacher had written a book titled Small is Beautiful. Small is Beautiful became a classic and uh, a bestseller. And uh, she recommended very strongly that I read the book. And the book was like a slap in the face, it was like somebody had taken a two by four and hit me on the side of the head because it changed my life. And what changed my life was one line in the book. And people said, what was it, the Bible? <laughs> How can one line in a book change your life? That line in the book set a emotion an intellectual process that took me to re to reconsider the entire way we did development. And that line in the book was on chapter uh, 13 of Small is Beautiful, was about the development in India and uh, Ernest Schumacher who had worked there, uh, he had written something that I will paraphrase, but what he had written was above all in development, if people do not wish to be helped, leave them alone. This should be the first principle of aid. And that phrase was to me impossible to comprehend because we had never asked the local people in any of the countries, in any of the projects, whether they wanted what we had to offer. Not only we Italians, I had never met a single international aid project that had asked the local people whether they wanted help. And I have to say that the revelation was so important because <clears throat> 
what Schumacher said was that the local people are not the passive recipients of our generosity. The local people are actors in their own lives. Actors in their own lives? The African people? We, we consider the African people our children. Was, that, was our you know, superior, you know, uh, uh, beneficence was our superior nobility of spirit that takes us Westerner to take the light of our civilization to the people who don't have it. So, you know, how can you possibly not be Italian? How can you possibly not like espresso and the, the cappuccino and the mafia? You know, we are the superior race. The arrogance of Westerners is infinite. I call the arrogance of arriving uninvited to tell people what to do. I call it meta arrogance. And by meta, I mean it's an arrogance that is so extreme, that is invisible to us. It is so embedded in the marrow of our bones that we don't even understand how offensive we are when we arrive uninvited to tell people how to live their lives. And the only way, only way <laughs> to explain it is what I did at the conference in Texas. Um, I was speaking in Austin, Texas, and there is this gentleman sitting in the first row, and he has the cowboy boots, the belt buckle, the, 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 the cowboy, you know, the, the Western shirt, the jacket, the, the Stetson. I know that he had a gun somewhere. <laughs> Couldn't see it, but I'm pretty sure that he had a gun. So what I did, just to get him to understand, I pointed my finger at him and said, what would you do if somebody uninvited would come through the gates of your Texan ranch, drive through your house, come inside your house and tell you that he's not happy with the way you are uh, bringing up your daughter? What would you do to somebody from another religion from a mother from another culture telling you that he's not happy with the way and that he has a better way of educating your daughter. So you know what this Texas guy <laughs> told me? He described and he gave me, he mentioned the caliber of the bullet that he would use to shoot me. Because he said, I will use 357 uh, Magnum. In other words, nobody can do it to us. <clears throat> nobody can come to our house uninvited to tell us how to bring up our daughter. I swear to you, Sarah, that in this moment, this very second, 
that I'm talking to you, there is a white face entering a village in Latin America or in Africa, this second telling those women how to educate the dog. Now, it's happening now. And as to what, what do you think is the reason that we, if we, I mean, us Westerns or also Europeans have this expectation when help, helping, I put this in quotes, when helping people in Africa and South America or Asian countries you go to, that we know it better, that we have the right resources, that uh, we are going to rescue them. Like why, yeah. why is this yeah, we are, so ingrained this, yeah. in the culture? This is what um, uh, I told in that TED talk, because I told the funny story. And when people were really relaxed in the audience, laughing about the hippos and how stupid we Italians uh, were and are, uh, then I said, we Western people are imperialists, colonialists, and missionaries. Mm. And there was like a punching everybody in the audience in the guts because nobody wants to hear that. And I said, and there are only two ways we deal with the other, with the foreigner. There are only two ways. We are either patronizing or paternalistic. The two words come from the Latin pater, which means father, but this, they mean two different things. Patronizing uh, means uh, I treat everybody as if they were my underlings, my servants, my employees. I'm the patron. I employ people. Okay. And paternalistic is I treat everybody as if they were my children. See, I love you so much. Oh, look, oh, they all, the, the black person, look at him, he's so cute. And that is really uh, this kind of not seeing people as if they were you. Mm. See, uh, it's total lack of empathy that is derived by what I call cultural hegemony, where we really believe <clears throat> that our race, our culture is superior to the culture of other people. And uh, so uh, that phrase, if people do not wish to, uh, to be helped, leave them alone, empower the people to decide whether they wanted you or not. I had never come across uh, that kind of uh, respect, uh, zero. We would do plans, we would ask, we would arrive, we would pay people, we would get them to work for us. Uh, uh, we would then bring them presents. To, so we, it was only paternalistic and patronizing. That's the only thing. <clears throat> so what I did when uh, it took me five years of building up enough <laughs> head of steam to be able to leave Italy, leave uh, the Italian culture, uh, the Western world. I went to do a PhD in uh, South Africa. <clears throat> and uh, uh, I took Small is Beautiful. Uh, I took the book with me to say, I want to see if it is possible to do development in response. Development in response. Mm -hmm. And I started to, uh, to do uh, what you do, uh, uh, Sarah, with your counseling, I started to, um, I studied uh, the work of Carl Rogers, 
person-centered, uh, uh, responsive counseling. Uh, I discovered humanistic psychology. I discovered this incredibly respectful uh, attitude where between the, the, the client and the counselor, the most important person is the client, not the counselor. Mm -hmm. Because it's the big end uh, and the fact that according to Carl Rogers, who is, who is my, my inspiration, my, um, my master, uh, my, my real um, inspiration for the work that I've been doing all my life, <clears throat> Uh, Carl Rogers says that um, in the relationship, and you will find this in your work, um, uh, you will recognize what I'm telling you right now. Carl Rogers saying, I cannot make the person better. The only thing that I can do, I can to indicate that from outside, when the person tells me what she's doing, from outside, I can observe that there are obstacles in the way mm -hmm. of the personal growth of this woman, of this man. So from outside, I say, do you realize that there are obstacles in your way? And the and they, um, client could say, which obstacle? <laughs> I think I'm just incapable. It's my fault. And you say, well... In the first 20 minutes, you have mentioned your mother five times, and every time you mention your mother, you cry. Can you? <laughs> Obviously, there is something unresolved there. And she said, oh my God, do I do that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, every time. Or oh, every time, every conversation, you go to the place that is the obstacle to your growth. So what? the counselor does, removes the obstacle in front of the person so that the person can keep growing. And it's the grown individual who solve her problem. You don't need a counselor. You need somebody to clear the way for your personal mm -hmm. growth. I love so how what you're... I did, I took this, this amazing approach. I took that to mm -hmm. uh, the field of uh, development, to personal development, to community development. Shut up, listen, remove the obstacle in front of these poor people who are self-motivated, they are beautiful, uh, but simply they do not know how to move forward. I love how you describe the approach of a coach or counselor or therapist. I think there are different approaches. For some people, they're very problem focused. And that's why they keep seeing their clients for 10 years, 15, 20, and they're not really moving forward and keep telling the same story. But what you were talking about, my mentor, when I started many years ago, he said, Sarah, as a coach, you're in a dark room with your client and you hold a torch and you help them to see things that they might not be able to see. Yeah. And you are doing it by asking questions. And so basically, as a coach, you're asking the right questions so long until they themselves come up with a certain answer. Yeah. And then a you give them yeah, a realization. And then you give them the tools 
to re like eliminate that block, whether it's a limiting belief, a trauma or anything it is, so they can grow and move forward. And also Absolutely. as a coach, which I really loved what he said was, I am the taxi driver. My, co my client is telling me where they want to go. So it's not up to me, even if I think I could know or anything, it's up to them to tell me what, where they want to go. Because what you said, you can only help those who want to be helped and you can only lead the, the horse to the water, but can't make them drink. And that's why it's very important when we, whether we're a coach, even if it's as a friend or as a partner or as a daughter or don't sister. And <clears throat> don't try to help somebody who doesn't want to be helped because yeah. if you want to see fury, <laughs> try to give advice to somebody who doesn't want it. Yeah. And uh, you know, every parent has fallen for that. You know, mm. uh, when I tell the story about um, uh, my, there are, when we train, the enterprise facilitators who are the people in the village that we train to then work for free in confidence with anybody who had an idea for a business, uh, that person, the enterprise facilitator, uh, is told uh, at the very beginning of their training, never initiate, never motivate. Mm. And this never initiate and never motivate, they say, what happens if nobody wants to do anything and we laugh because we say uh, you don't understand you don't understand if you're in a community of 5,000 people 10,000 people uh, as soon as you shut up long enough and uh, the people around you introduce you as somebody who has been trained to in confidence to listen to entrepreneurial idea and to help entrepreneurs. As soon as you are silent long enough, not trying to find customers, but having other people referring you sooner or later, uh, in the first say 30 days, 60 days, you get the first person who is a local, passionate, secret entrepreneur. You work with her, um, full-time your first client is sacred because you the importance of the first clients is extraordinary because the moment that she opens up a business she launches her activity then you go to the, the uh, first client and you say can you help me and as to what says oh. I wanted to ask with all the experience you have, yeah. what do you think is the one secret to business success? Like one of the main ingredients? <clears throat> yeah, there is a secret. And the secret of business success is that there is no uh, history of any um, uh, business that uh, has started and has expanded and has succeeded um, be driven only by one person. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is no history of that. Um, if you, uh, if you look at the history of successful enterprises, and I did that for uh, my second book, I uh, researched 100 of the iconic companies in the world from uh, Edison, from Edison, Carnegie, Rothschild, uh, US Steel, Boeing, uh, 
you know, uh, all the new ones, the, the Apple, the uh, Microsoft, every single successful company at the beginning, in the garage, in the ba basement, there were two, three or four people. And the reason why is because for a successful business to prosper, three things have to be done beautifully. The product has to be magnificent. Taking it to the market has to be done beautifully. And financial management has to be impeccable. There is not one person in the world who loves equally to do these three things. So what happens is that very often the self-motivated entrepreneurs that come to you has a passion uh, for the product or for the uh, marketing and the passion for the product or for the marketing um, uh, by themselves cannot absolutely help you to, to do those three things beautifully. So if you're passionate about the product, you, you're passionate about reaching people, about coaching, you obviously, uh, your passion is the coaching um, uh, technique there is the so what happened is that uh, you are uh, very good at doing that and uh, you are very good at uh, talking about coaching you are uh, a broadcaster you're very good at uh, making sure that broadcast is done properly that they, you're a good interviewer those are product uh, and then what what you need is somebody that helps you to make sure that you know, that uh, the market is uh, that your clientele is cultivated, that uh, uh, you make the money to support and to sustain your activities. So what happened is that what I say to people, the very first moment that the person comes to me, after an hour of listening to their dream, I then ask product marketing finance. If you could only do the thing that you love the most in your company, which one of these three areas you would assume responsibility for? And I have people who I never thought about it and they say, oh, I don't have money. I have to do it all of myself. And I said, no, no, no. If you could do mm -hmm. what you love, which one would you uh, take care of? And as soon as they tell me, then um, I said to them, okay, um, who do you know that can take your product to the market? Who do you know in your community? Who do you know in your family, among your friends? Why don't you do what um, Google did? Why don't you do what Apple did? Why don't you do what Richard Branson did? Uh, why don't you do what successful entrepreneurs? They only do what they love to do, but they surround themselves with people who can do beautifully uh, the rest. And so all my work has been one of uh, explaining that the death of the entrepreneur is solitude. If you're alone, uh, what happened is that you are so good at doing one thing. And the way I describe it, I, you know, I take a pen or a thing, and I said to them, okay, these are the, uh, what happened is that you need to have these three done. So your competitive advantage, you are the best in the village at producing chicken. And so now what you do, you stop being the best in the world at produ producing chickens because you have to take them to the market. You hate taking chicken to the market because you love to be in breeding chickens. And then 
you absolutely don't understand finance. So now you stop doing what you love to do, to learn to do badly what you hate. And that's the death of the entrepreneur, which is solitude. And to give you an idea, uh, make a very, you know, so many, so many examples and stories, but um, first of all, this is dynamite because as soon as you continue to do what you do, but you find that your, your uh, nephew can take the chicken to the market. Now you discover that you are not uh, losing chickens to wild animals and wild feral cats because you are there looking after the chicken. But then you discover that uh, there is a market out there that you had absolutely no idea that was because there are your your nephew loves to be in the marketplace and um, i had the 46 they, one of the most dramatic things that happened to me i described the trinity of management i call it the trinity of management to uh, a um a canadian um, entrepreneur he was 46 years of age and when he understood the little drawing that I do, you know, smiley face with three boxes, the product marketing finance. When he understood what I was talking about, which is stay in your area of competitive advantage, becoming the best at doing what you love to do, surround yourself with people who can do the rest. He started to cry and he was sobbing and I waited for him to calm down. And then he said to me, I have been bankrupted twice the first time i went bankrupt i said okay i can learn how to do it better i started another startup i went bankrupted the second time and this time i lost my family they all left me so when i went bankrupt basically i lost my family so now i started again and i'm just about to go bankrupt again and i until now until you told me, I thought that my problem was finance. I'm a product person. And I've been trying to learn how to do the financial part. So I stopped. It's now two years that I don't do beautifully what I can do. I don't work in my area of competitive advantage. I don't even know who I am any longer. And I said to him, you see, you went from being passionate and beautiful in your area of competence to become a dilettante mm -hmm. because now you are not working in your area of competitive advantage and you are trying to do the rest, but because you don't love it, you are mediocre. Now, when you are alone, but in your area of competitive advantage, everybody wants to be your friend because you're fascinating, because you kick ass, you are really good, you're passionate, you have energy, you are an achiever in your area of competence. But the moment you stop doing what you were born to do, to try to learn to do something that is impossible for you to do well, because your, for your character, it is repulsive to knock on doors, to go and sell. For your character, it is repulsive to be counting pennies. Then you become an amateur and nobody wants to know you anymore. 
So the guy said, I should have met you 20 years ago. And you know how many people told me that? So I said, to, when we teach the Trinity of Management to a school, I only once run, in a, run a class, a year-long entrepreneurial class uh, with teachers in uh, Northumberland in the UK to 17 years old. The very first lesson, we got all the teenagers in this classroom to read the first page of Richard Branson's autobiography. And the task was to read that page and underline how many times Richard Branson, in his own words, uh, in describing his own life, how many times Richard Branson used the word I and how many times the word we. In the first page of the autobiography of Richard Branson, never the word I, the word we 32 times. Mm. He was not alone when he started. That's he beautiful. So this is the secret. Secret of our business is understand yourself, uh, sit by the, by the water, <laughs> sit by the mountain, contemplate and meditate about if you could do what you absolutely love to do in your life, what would it be? Would it be producing a product or a service? Would be to tell the world about it? <laughs> Find out how many people need that product, the service, and how that product and service should be modified to please them, which is marketing. Or would you be interested in making sure that uh, the money is controlled, that the company is solvable, uh, solvent? Uh, what is your love? Sometimes uh, what I do is probably you're very aware of this technique. Um, there are people say to me, I don't know who I am. And I said, tell me who you were age eight. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> because, you know, you go back to the kids to say, what did you love doing? And they say, oh, I was an adventurer. Uh, I was always in nature. I was with my friends. Uh, no, I built stuff. I, I, I was a mechano. I was a, you know, a, a Lego uh, a crazy guy. What are you doing now? And you discover that there are people who were extrovert communicators, always in teams, always team, 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 team. Now they work alone in a cubicle and they hate their lives. They are missing the companionship. There are people who were solitary people who love the pure, they, they, they could be eight hours a day, you know, self-absorbed. And they love that, the conceptual work, the research and stuff. And they are being asked to go and knock on doors. They hate people. So respect, mm -hmm. respect for the quality, the inherent uh, beauty of people. Kids are beautiful. Kids are just, you see them do stuff and you say, oh my God, imagine maintaining that kind of flow the kind of easiness in your life where you do beautifully what you love to do in a context where you are surrounded by people who are truly 
uh, enthusiastically involved with the overall mission of your company, mm -hmm. but they take care of what they are comfortable with. I, I totally agree with what you are saying about taking time to find out what makes your heart happy and what is your gift that you can share most beautiful with the world and what's your mission. And I am a big believer if we know that and if we are willing to trust others with our mission and to bring them in and to connect and to march together, that along the way we meet at the right time, the right people. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs say in the beginning, yeah, I meet them, but I don't have the money to give them like, and I say, there are so many ways, like there are people who help you for free because they believe in the mission. You offer them a little bit of, you know, parts of your company, or you do a service trade. You're good at A, so you teach that person that and he teaches you something Absolutely. else. Uh, so I think it's a being more creative about about the trading and also whatever. Yes. Whatever you need to do. Mm -hmm. And I say to people, beg, barter, offer shares, uh yes. delay pay, uh do uh, you know um you say you can say to an accountant, you help me now, I have no money, but as soon as we start to make money, you will be able to pay yourself mm -hmm. because you will have the checkbook. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> what I'm what I'm saying is that uh, uh you do not need money to make a friend. And if you look at the history of Silicon Valley, it's a history of friendship. It's, it, this is blows the mind of people, but Silicon Valley is a history of friendship. People who decide to work together and they see this great adventure and one of them has smelled something. The other one say, oh my God, you're right. Let's do it. <laughs> and so uh, the Silicon Valley model is that uh, nobody could pay in anybody, nobody had any money. So what you do, you say, okay, we form a company, we give we, we give options to each other. And so uh, I think that there are, as you say, there are a million ways to, to do that. The thing mm -hmm. that you should never do is remain alone. Because if you are alone, one of the stories that I tell Italians, uh, Italians don't know the secret of entrepreneurship. The Italians, are, their, their model is the artisan model. So they're beautiful artisan with the product and the product is so beautiful that people buy them, but only the people who know them. So now the French are buying all the Italian brands. All the Italian brands are now French because the French know how to market. So the Italians make it, the French, the French make the money <laughs> because the French are selling all these Italian brands around the world because the French had learned how to uh, sell internationally. They always done much better than the Italians. So what happens is that uh, I like to provoke the, my, uh, you know, uh, the Italian uh, connationals. So they are people, uh, I'm Italian. So when I give presentations uh, in Italy, I always try to sneak in this question to the Italians. And the question is, uh, they have this great hero of uh, everything in the Italian culture. Enzo Ferrari. The Ferrari is like, oh my God, you want to talk about Italy, Ferrari? Okay. So Enzo Ferrari is this great uh, hero of Italy. And the question that I asked the audience is, uh, is, 
who was the very first financial person helping Enzo Ferrari. And nobody knows. And the, the person who did all the accounts for Enzo Ferrari when he had the dealership of the Alfa Romeo, uh, the very first business that Ferrari, Enzo Ferrari had, the, the person in charge of finances was his mother, Adalgisa Ferrari. And for the Italians, it's like a slap in the face of the entire audience because for the idea that their hero mm. needed his mom to look after the money is nearly inconceivable. It's like saying that John Wayne had, you know, had un the auntie of John Wayne was the one that made sure that John Wayne would arrive on the set sober. It's like diminishing the image of this macho bullshit idea of the macho bullshit entrepreneur. Everyone had somebody behind helping them. You know, nobody knows that, uh, you know, Edison, who, who could, who was the person who could say no to Edison? His name was Bachelor. Without Bachelor, Edison would not have done what he did. And you say, oh, okay, but it was a little bit under, you know, maybe nobody has heard of it. Oh, yeah, but Edison knew when uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the president of the United States, went to visit Edison and wanted to take a picture of Edison. Edison did not want to have the picture without Bachelor in the picture because he felt ashamed <laughs> that he would get the glory. So he got the picture with Bachelor, and then they have, the, when you find the picture of Edison and Roosevelt, you find out that they have <laughs> erased this strange character that was next to Edison. Same thing with Henry Ford. Henry Ford was went bankrupt twice by age 46. The third time, you know, he was obliged to have a financial manager who was a genius, uh, you know, and uh, James Cousin was the CFO of, Ed, of, uh, of Henry Ford. Without, um, uh, without him, Henry Ford, who was an engineer, had no idea about money, he would have gone bankrupt the third time. So uh, the secret of what we do is called the Trinity of Management. It's about product marketing finance with these three people, with three different characters seeing the world differently and uh, all having the strengths, the courage to tell the truth about the other two. And uh, a company is a compromise between uh, these three vision of product, marketing, finance, because if you leave it to the product people, they want more money to create a better product. If you leave it to marketing people, they want money to go to the Tokyo Trade Fair, and they want to give the product for free to as many people as possible because they want everybody to talk about it. And the finance people are the people who says, the two of you stop fighting. We need to give the public what the public uh, needs, but what the public can pay for, because if we don't make a profit, we don't have a future. So that's what I've been teaching. And uh, we have helped some 65,000 companies in 27 countries. Wow. 400 communities without ever giving a cent to anybody. Because the moment you have three different people, uh, one keeping an eye on the product, one uh, making sure that uh, the markets are com uh, constantly, um, constantly uh, kept interested uh, about the product, 
getting the feedback from the market, modifying the product. And when you have somebody who can really price correctly your service or your goods and make sure that you are profitable, then uh, everybody wants to be your friend. <laughs> it's really amazing how much you have achieved and also how it all started with the hippos. <laughs> Yeah, I I, I just, I absolutely love everything you said. The death of an entrepreneur is solitude and entrepreneurs should do what they're best at doing and should surround themselves with people who can do beautifully the rest. Uh, also, what I find so important, both for the professional and the personal life, you know, the first step to aid is respect. And Absolutely. it's something I find so, 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 so important to keep coming back to the understanding and being humble and being open and meeting people with equality. And, and I still, I could, I would have loved to talk for hours with you about all of that, but I want to make sure we also cover one other really important topic on our podcast, because as you know, we bring together animal lovers. So I would mm -hmm. love to talk a little bit about a pet. You have a pet right now, a dog, right? You want to talk to Monty? <laughs> Monty, 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 come, come. Somebody wants to meet you, come. Monty, come. <laughs> He's like, what about all this press? Come, come, it's come. too much for come, today. <laughs> okay. This is Monty. Sorry. No, no, I wanted to introduce you. <laughs> so cute. Okay. So Monty is uh, 12 years old. He's a German short hair pointer. And he's my um, fitness trainer and my psychiatrist. Unpaid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I I I pay in in in. Uh, in oh, in everything. Uh, yeah, true. <laughs> you know, uh, he has food, lodging, uh, international travel. He's mm -hmm. a very good traveler. He comes to Italy for months every year, and so he is an international traveling dog. Uh, he has a bed in each room in the house. Um, he's, um, but at the same time, he is uh, truly my um, personal trainer because at four o'clock every every day he comes to me and says, "Come on, we have to go and walk." So it's um, it's a good relationship we have. <laughs> and as to what do you think we can learn from dogs when it comes to interactions with humans? Well, first, first of all, the, the most important thing for me is their, um, uh, they are constant. They, uh, they have a state of mind that uh, um, very easily goes back to reset to, uh, to, to their uh, loving you. And yeah, you can be uh, silly and you can, one day you can be angry and you can treat them badly and they will resent you for about two seconds and then they love you again. So I really think that uh, this constancy in uh, character is beautiful. And there are some, uh, um, you know, dog lovers who truly, truly know uh, that uh, uh, 
whatever is the state of mind when they will be in the company of their uh, pet, uh, they will be, uh, they will go into that calm space where the animal is at. And it's very calming. And to me, is the beautiful example of how we should live our lives. We should be more in, driven from what is inside of us than what are the stimuli outside. And so what I found is that you can really uh, uh, upset a dog, but in few hours time, even after a trip to Italy of 15 hours, uh, 20 hours on the, in a cage, the poor dog comes out there and it's really, imagine, in few hours time, is with you, is, is there. <laughs> Whereas we humans, we keep thinking about something negative that has happened to us forever. And we keep this mind that we keep the anger and we keep, uh, it is like if we have something that is a sore tooth, we always stick the, the tongue in the sore. We cannot avoid this, this loss of mental control. And I love the fact that they, uh, you know, when I'm with Monty and we go for walks, it's like, it takes me back 10 years because we go and walk and he recognizes places that he likes and he's like a puppy. <laughs> and I'm looking at him and say, how do you do that? <laughs> so, yeah, I love that very, very, very much. Um, I also have the, the impression that there is a feeling that is a non-human feeling, but is a, a feeling of beings who are existing at the same time, the same place. So we share something that is so much more profound with animals. See, it's like we, you know, it's, a, it's kind of, we live at maybe at two different frequencies and yet those frequencies have something that is very ancient and, and in common. So mm -hmm. we are much, much closer at the genetic level. We are much, much closer. The, uh, we are born, we all the children of this strange planet this strange experiment we all come out of the same primordial soup so, so you know like <laughs> there is some some uh, kinship there you see what i mean like, you know, you know uh, i think that i will find myself uh, i think it would be equally scary for monty and for myself to be in in confronted with, with an extraterrestrial because we are from earth we are terrestrial uh, creatures you see what i mean <laughs> ernesto we wrap up every episode with three animal related questions so question number one is one is one reason what is one of the reasons you're grateful for monty oh um
Monty uh, is, uh, uh, I'm grateful because he allows me to go back to what is essential and what is important in my life. And I think that it, it keeps me grounded and uh, it's, um, um, he, he has an enormous uh, ability to help me to decompress. So uh, he's truly uh, a therapist to me. Mm. That's the first thing. It's like this ability to say, forget about it. Let's go for a walk and let's, let's breathe. And what do you think we can learn from dogs when it comes to listening? Oh, um, I think it's for me, um, they're very, very aware of, um, state of minds, body postures, uh, physical environments. Um, so to watch him even find a place to sleep. Uh, it's very, it's very interesting because they are so much more aware of the, the, the world in which they inhabit. They don't live in their heads only. They, they have a physicality that is beautiful to watch. So yes, I think that they listen not only with their ears, but they listen to, to messages that, uh, we don't really are aware of any longer. But in our animal life, in our primordial state, we were, we knew exactly what, <laughs> what was what. Um, so I, for instance, I make sure that when we go for a walk, if we have to play, if I have to play with him and I have to uh, throw a ball or a, uh, a biscuit, I will always make sure that I throw it where he has not seen it going because I was told that it's very, very important for their sanity and for health, mm -hmm. uh, especially as uh, bird dogs, like hunting dogs, that they use the sense of smell. So we, I exercise him to make sure that the sense of smell is, is exercised every day. And sometimes I'm thinking, am I doing the same with my senses? Mm -hmm. or I am never even smelling things any longer or watching uh, uh, things any longer because we live so much inside our brain. Such a beautiful reminder to keep coming back to our senses. So we, you know, to be present, to really ex fully experience our life, but also to disconnect because whenever yeah. we actually smell what is happening or hear or or feel and sense and taste i mean how often do we eat while writing emails and at the same time someone else is coming in and we after two hours we might even have forgotten what we ate so it's a beautiful reminder to keep coming back to the privilege of even having our senses and to yeah. use use those gifts absolutely yeah and my yeah, and, and the dog will make you aware of it. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to add, I love you that you help him to train his nose. Um, in the dog world, they say nose work is 
the, you know, basically helping them to train their mental health. And so it's really good that you're helping your dog to do that. Well, we are done for today. I know you are about to head into your next meeting. Ernesto, thank you so no, much for your time. Time for, time for Monty to go for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> Most important meeting of the day. <laughs> Ernesto, thank you really. Like I know you're you. so busy. That's why I appreciate even more your time and you sharing your wealth with us and also your humor and good spirit. And also thank you for introducing us to Monty and um, we hope you enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much, Sarah. It was really lovely and from a different perspective. So congratulations what you're doing and uh, um, you know, uh, good luck with your, everything you're doing with your passion and your enterprise. Thank you so much. Bye -bye. Thank you, bye. It's a wrap for today, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you loved the conversation. Please let us know on social media how you liked it. What were your key takeaways? And also, don't forget to tune in next Wednesday because we are here with another exciting episode.